0: Well, we do turn the corner this evening as we begin this next section of the letter. One through three marks Paul's theological exposition, very much centering on the doctrine of the church. And then there is a shift in his tone as we move into four through six Not to say at all that four through six is lacking in theology, but very much Paul seeks to build upon the first three chapters and exhort the Christians in Ephesus to live in light of all that he has written to them. So we begin this evening that new section of the letter, and as we do so, we mustn't leave the first three chapters behind us. In fact, I imagine that most weeks I will appeal to something Paul has said in the first three chapters of the letter as a basis for, a reason for, his exhortations found in the subsequent three chapters. We mustn't leave the first three chapters behind us, but very much keep them in view. And in tonight's sermon, it's particularly important that we remember the prayer that Paul has just prayed for the Ephesians. The second prayer of this letter, we spent the last two weeks thinking through it. It's important to remember that prayers have consequences. It's often been said that ideas have consequences, and certainly they do. How much more so prayers? When you come before God who is pleased to accept and hear your prayers through the blood of Christ, please to answer your prayers, especially when you pray in accordance with Scripture, how much more so should we expect that our prayers have consequences? I hope that you've at least considered including Paul's prayers in Ephesians in your regular prayer time, if it wasn't already part of what you bring before the Lord, that now you would regularly pray through Ephesians 3, 14 through 21 for yourself and for your church, the believers whom God has placed you in fellowship with. As you pray for spiritual strength, as you pray regularly that that spiritual strength would lead to a dwelling of Christ in our hearts through faith. And as you pray that that dwelling would lead to a fuller apprehension of Christ's love. And as you pray that that apprehension of his love would lead to a filling of all the fullness of God, understand that there are consequences to that prayer. Specifically, specifically, as God is faithful to fill us with all of his fullness, he does not expect that we would sit around and do nothing with such a blessing. God expects that we would respond to his grace in our lives through answered prayer by being very active, by responding to his grace and walking in a path of obedience, especially as it relates to our conduct in the church. And that is Paul's concern. In these first three verses of the fourth chapter, his concern is that the Christians in Ephesus would respond to the grace that God has given to them by walking in a manner worthy of the calling that they have received. we can break down the flow of thought according to three points. The first, Paul considers their calling. Then moves on to consider their character. And finally, their conduct. I don't normally offer a three-point sermon that's alliterated. But just to give you a break with all of the heat and to make things a little bit easier this evening, we'll think about our calling what is to be our character and our conduct in the church with the aim that we would respond appropriately to the grace that we have been given and that we would be the church, beginning then with the calling. Paul writes, I therefore. Now just consider that he includes the word therefore. He is very evidently building this argument off of the basis of what has gone before. You cannot detach four through six, or even these three verses from what has gone before. One through three builds the foundation for this exhortation. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul wants the Christians in Ephesus to be Christians. He wants the church in Ephesus to be the church, to be nothing less than what God has called them to be. Notice he urges them. He prioritizes this for them in their lives. He strongly compels them. He desires that they would heed his instruction Above all other things, whatever you consider your priority to be, the scriptures teach you that your priority, in light of the grace that you have received through the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross, your priority is to respond and to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received. Not only does Paul urge them, but then notice he uses a metaphor namely the metaphor for walking, to represent their living, their being in the world. To pull on this metaphor of walking, Paul is leaning into a very common idea as found in the Old Testament. All of life is portrayed as walking in the Proverbs and even in the Old Testament law. And there is, as we consider the nature of the metaphor, walking, representing our living, there is there both a great encouragement and a challenge. To speak of the Christian life as a walk is a great encouragement because it indicates ongoing, repetitive, habitual progress. To speak of the Christian life as a walk indicates Paul's awareness that no Christian reaches spiritual maturity overnight. It is to be a a journey, a consistent putting one foot after the other, a daily discipline of headed in the right direction. That should be for you this evening a great encouragement. Rome was not built in a day. Nobody expects you to attain to spiritual maturity overnight. The men's breakfast yesterday, we heard a wonderful testimony from our brother Adrian. Adrian has been walking with the Lord now for some time, and I praise God for the evident work of grace in his life. But one thing that came through in Adrian's testimony is how he looks back On previous years, not least when he was unregenerate, and he sees in his words what a fool he was. The Lord saved him and through much perseverance has made him into the man he is today. It is the same for all of us in that sense. We're all on a journey and there is great encouragement for the Scriptures to simply acknowledge the progressive nature of our sanctification. There's also a great challenge inherent to the metaphor. As Paul describes the Christian life as a walk, he infers an evident prohibition against passivity. You cannot, as a Christian, be allowed to sit back and do nothing. There is absolutely nowhere in the Bible by which you are exhorted or encouraged to not pursue holiness and Christ-likeness and obedience to his word. We are to be pursuing maturity on a continual, everyday basis, and we are not to adopt the mindset wherein we believe we've been saved and nothing is required of us. And I stress that point because I do believe there is a prevailing belief amongst many Christians today that the Christian life is a very passive life. God has saved me and he'll take care of the rest. We see it in people's reluctance simply to be part of a church Their attendance is not consistent and they are unwilling to commit to any one local body. We see it in Christians' reluctance to serve, having become members' untold opportunities to pursue sanctification through service and yet a persistent reluctance to, undoubtedly a belief hidden somewhere in the heart that I don't need to pursue these opportunities for my own benefit. We see it in a reluctance to fight sin, a willingness to tolerate sin, understanding that one day I'll be in glory and everything then will be fine, and so why do I need to get that much head up over my sin today? That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible portrays the Christian life as a walk because it is to be a consistent, progressive journey towards Christ-likeness. God expects insomuch as he has saved you that you would be pursuing, by his grace, sanctification. And Paul urges them towards this end. He urges them to be walking the walk. Paul urges the Christians to be Christians. And notice how he phrases it, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Now, the idea here is that they would be walking uprightly in such a way that is consistent with the gospel. The idea is that they would, in their public life and in their church life and in their private lives, in all areas of their lives, be honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone was to look in on their lives, they would not find anything that dishonors their Lord. Rather, to walk in a manner worthy is to walk in such a way that the Lord Jesus Christ is well represented by your conduct. This would not have been lost on Paul's original readers. I think even today we know something of this principle, at least through our parenting efforts. One thing that we'll often speak to our kids about is the responsibility that they carry as they leave our home. They leave our home to pursue an activity or to be with friends and we'll remind them you have a responsibility to represent this family well. Your conduct outside of the home is informing other people's estimations of our family. You have a responsibility to represent us well, to honor us, to walk in a manner that is worthy of our family. It should be that they cannot come to bad conclusions based on your behavior outside of the home. It's a biblical principle. It is, at least in part, what it means for children to honor their mother and father in the same way Paul says to the Christians in Ephesus, You are to behave in such a way that the Lord Jesus Christ is honored. That as people look at you, they esteem Christ. They find no reason to think badly of him based upon your conduct. And that sounds like a lofty responsibility that he places upon them, and certainly it is. But notice how he finishes the verse. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And I love those last few words of the verse because by including them, Paul brings into view yet again the grace of the gospel. Paul exhorts them undoubtedly to a high and lofty responsibility Honor Christ in your conduct, represent him well, walk the walk and be a Christian, but do so remembering that this is all a gift of God's grace to you. In reality, we cannot walk the walk, we cannot honor Christ unless we remember his grace in our lives. The first three chapters, if I can oversimplify the theology, the first three chapters is God's grace to us. It's only after Paul gives us chapter after chapter of God's grace to us that we are then ready and prepared to heed the exhortations of 4 through 6. Even as we turn the corner, Paul consistently reminds us you don't deserve to be in God's family. You did not merit his favor. You didn't work for it. But it is all of his grace. And as you have received his grace, may that be the grounds upon which you walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Notice Paul allows for no exceptions to this walking. I don't think it's incidental that he makes mention of him being a prisoner. It's not often in Ephesians that Paul references his imprisonment. It was written while he was a prisoner, and yet he doesn't mention it as often as he does in some of the other prison epistles, but here he does. And I believe the reason for that is just to emphasize how consistent we are to be in our walking. A prisoner, especially in the first century, is arguably in the most vulnerable position that anybody could ever find themselves in. A prisoner, especially in the first century, is utterly at the mercy of his prison guard. Whatever the prison guard decides to do, the prisoner is subject to those actions. He is utterly vulnerable, and yet as a prisoner, he walks the Christian walk. He does the Christian thing. He's not ashamed of the gospel as a prisoner, knowing the repercussions that that may have for him. And by implication, his message to the Christians in Ephesus is whatever are your circumstances, whatever are your God-ordained circumstances, your responsibility according to the grace of the gospel is that you would walk, and you would walk in a manner that is worthy of your salvation. That is our calling. Paul goes on from there to speak about our character. The calling gives rise and ought to produce a certain character in us. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Now notice Paul lists three characteristics there. But I believe that he intends for us to think about them according to two groups. I say that by noting the use of the word with. With all humility and gentleness, there's one group. With patience, another group. It infers that humility and gentleness should be thought of together. These are the characteristics of a Christian. Humility, then, speaks first and foremost about a lowliness of mind. A lowliness of spirit. Not speaking first and foremost about our actions, our conduct amongst others, but by virtue of the very word that Paul uses, it speaks about the disposition of our hearts. Humility here speaks about a lowliness of spirit. Now, I do want to be careful. It is not that we're to have no esteem for ourselves or one another. We have to balance that with the biblical teaching that we are all made in the image of God. But when I say a lowliness of heart, a lowliness of spirit, I mean a a heart, a disposition of spirit that accords with a proper understanding of the gospel. We have to remind ourselves, yes, we have been created in God's image. What a privilege, but we are all sinners before a holy God. We were all enemies of God, running against his will with no desire for him. Appealing again to the grace of the gospel, the only reason we are here tonight as Christians is because of God's electing love placed upon us from before the foundation of the world, effected through the death of his Son. And so we understand that and we keep that in view and that should create in us An appropriate disposition in our hearts, which is then worked out through that second characteristic, gentleness. If humility speaks about a lowliness in our spirits, gentleness speaks about a lowliness in our actions. We're not brash. We're not arrogant. We're not pushy. We're not trying to assert ourselves in every situation and have our way, but there is a lowliness in our conduct. Christians should be humble and gentle. That's the first grouping, and then Paul moves on, and he says with this new group, with patience. The idea there is that we would be long-suffering. Or as we see of God, so many times in the Old Testament, we would be slow to anger. We would not quickly lose patience and show annoyance with others. We would not quickly be in a state where we are being bothered by those around us, but we are long-suffering. Notice, by invoking that characteristic, Paul is assuming Our presence amongst the believers. It's remarkably easy to be patient when you're by yourself. It is when you situate yourself in the church and you live your life there and you open yourself up to be vulnerable with others. That is when the utmost patience is required. I trust you know Bethany is not the perfect church. And you are not the perfect church member. We will fail one another. We'll bother one another. We'll sin against one another. And what Paul calls for in all of us is the utmost patience that we would be long suffering with one another. Again, having laid out the loftiness of our calling as he moves from calling to characteristics, the responsibility by no means diminishes. In fact, as I've meditated upon just these three characteristics, and there are so many more that Paul could have listed, as I have thought upon humility and gentleness and patience this week, I have just come to a sobering realization of how lofty is our calling in the church, in Christ Jesus. To be consistent in these characteristics is no small task. If we go about it in our own strength, seeking to effect by our own efforts these characteristics in our lives, one of two things will happen. Either our demonstration of these characteristics will be sporadic at best, or our demonstration of these characteristics will be superficial. If you go it alone and you strive in your own strength to be someone who is humble and gentle and patient, you will do so sporadically or superficially, or perhaps even both. The point is, there is no way lastingly to be someone who is humble, gentle, and patient, situating yourself within the group of believers apart from a constant running towards the grace of the gospel. How is it that we can be humble and gentle and patient to walk the Christian walk, to do the Christian thing, to be genuine in the exercising of our faith? It is to live our lives in the grace of the gospel. I just read recently what many consider to be a Christian classic. I had never read it before, Henry Skugel's short book, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. Perhaps you've heard of it, perhaps you've read it, it wouldn't take you long to read. Written many, many years ago, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. I love the title. It was originally a letter that Skugel wrote to a new believer, He was trying to explain to him what exactly is the Christian life and how might we attain to it. And early on in the letter, he tries to summarize what it means to live a Christian life. As Paul puts it, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. He summarizes it. Summarizes it by saying we are to lay hold of on a daily basis the divine life. We are to seize the divine life. And as I thought about that particular phrase, I found it to be so helpful. I think Skugel intended it to mean that we we live in accordance with all that God is for us and all that He intends for us to be, we seize the divine life, and pursue in particular communion with him as a way of exercising obedience. But I find also that that phrase is helpful because it infers that our lives should begin with a consideration of who God is. To live the Christian life is to begin with a steadfast consideration of who God is to us In Christ, how may any of us attain to humility, gentleness, and patience in their truest forms? In a lasting way, the answer is we consider just how humble our Lord Jesus was in coming to us and dying on a cross. The answer is, we consider just how gentle was Christ amongst us, living his life and giving himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. The answer is, we consider just how patient God has been with us, in bearing with us during all of our years of rebellion, and even now, as believers that frequently sin against him, And as we think about the divine life and as we seek by God's grace to seize hold of those realities daily, that is when the Spirit begins to effect within us genuine and lasting humility, gentleness, and patience. I wonder if someone were to write a short bio of you, whether they would find cause to mention these characteristics. You tell to me how you would describe my life. Just a few sentences summarize what you see in me. Would they find any cause to use the words Humility, gentleness, and patience. And if not, perhaps it is because you are not seizing hold of the divine life. Perhaps it is because you do not take seriously the calling that you have received The exhortation, the urgency of the exhortation to walk in a manner worthy of the calling and to seize then in turn as the only means of progress the reality of God to us in Christ. Paul goes on from our characteristics then to our conduct. Fleshing out now what these characteristics look like on a daily basis in our behavior, he uses two participles, bearing with one another in love, and the second one there, not made plain by the ESV, working eagerly, we might say. The first one, bearing, the second one, verse 3, striving with all eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I say to my Greek students, the most important thing you'll ever learn about participles is that they're pronounced participles. <laughs> and not participles. Watch out for the participles, because they'll often explain the way in which the main verb is to be actioned. They often explain the the manner in which we submit to the primary exhortation. The primary exhortation is to walk, to do the Christian thing. Don't be a fake, says Paul. Live up to the calling that you have received. How? How? Day by day, in the life of the believing community, you are to do two things. You are to bear with one another in love, and you are to strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now again, I do think these two participles form one composite thought, I believe that we're to understand them as going hand in hand. First of all, we bear with one another in love. Our conduct above all things towards one another should be one of love. We would rejoice with those who rejoice. We mourn with those who mourn. We weep with those who weep. We do our uttermost so that the lasting impression, the exercise of influence that we might have in somebody else's life is one of love. When they walk away from this church, they say that is a community of people that love one another. They evidently have a deep rooted, deep seated, abiding love and affection for one another. We conduct ourselves in that way so that we might also maintain the unity of the church. You see that second participle, verse three, Is one that we need to take with the utmost severity. We must be those who are guarding diligently the unity of the local church. Paul labored for two chapters to teach us about this unity. Chapters two and chapters, and chapter three, as you'll remember, Paul kept banging the drum of unity in the church. There, in his context, it was by virtue of Jew and Gentile coming together, finding themselves in an unprecedented situation. But it's not a million miles from the situation in which we find ourselves or any local church finds itself. Namely, we don't get to choose who's here. God brings those whom he has chosen. He decides who is part of this local church in the same way he decides who is part of any local church. And our responsibility of the utmost priority is that this is a place wherein there is unity. There will be disagreements. I pray that they would not be of a theological nature. This is why we labor hard as folks come into membership. To make plain what it is that we believe and what you can expect to hear taught from the pulpit, there really should be no surprises. You understand what we believe as a church, what we adhere to, what are our doctrines. I pray the Lord would keep us back from theological disagreements. There may be along the way what I refer to as philosophy of ministry disagreements How do you then apply that theology and allow it to be worked out in the life of the church? How do we shepherd our people? How do we facilitate fellowship? These are questions not primarily of theology, but more philosophy of ministry. There may be disagreements along the way in that area, but honestly, in my experience, I have found that most disagreements within the church, belong to a third category, namely preference issues. It is not often that there is a theological disagreement or a disunity that comes about through theological discord. It is not even that frequent that you see disunity in a local church because of philosophy of ministry differences. All too often, tragically, the disagreements and the disunity that arises comes from preference issues. Preference issues need to be left at the door. Preference issues should never cause disunity in a local church. Notice the unity is not created by any one person. The unity comes about as a working of the Holy Spirit and is manifested through the many. The unity comes about through the working of the Holy Spirit and is manifested through the many. And yet, it may be lost through the one. It may be that one person, causes disunity in the congregation. Determine in your hearts today that as an utmost priority of your membership, you will be one who is preserving the unity of this church. That you would never be someone bringing disunity. Pray that God would grant you a proper perspective on the issues that will arise in the life of this church. Pray that God would give you a proper perspective on their importance, that you would know where they sit in the scale of importance in the life of the church and the ministry of the gospel. And if there is a preference issue, that you would be humble enough to lay it aside so as to maintain the unity of the Spirit. When you walk the walk, when you are mindful of your calling and diligent to pursue it, when, by God's grace, you display the characteristics that ought to be true of all Christians, And when you conduct yourself in such a way that accords with Scripture, bearing with one another in love and striving to maintain unity, the outworking of that behavior is that the church becomes the church. The church becomes, as some have referred to it, a very compelling community. I've said it before, there is nothing that distinguishes us from any other club that might gather together if we are not in submission to the Scriptures. If we are not living out our faith, if we are not exercising the gospel that God has given to us, there is nothing that will set us apart from any other group of people that might choose to come together on any day of the week. But when we come together in submission to the Scriptures, eagerly fostering the gift of grace that has been given to us, then we stand out as the church. We become who God has always intended for us to be, a compelling community. And you will find that when we are the church, there is great joy to be had in sacrifice in service, in self denial, and you will find that we become strangely attractive to a watching world who know enough to discern that we have something that they don't have. God is put on display as we submit ourselves to these verses and strive to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. With which we have been called. I pray that God would be at work amongst us to this end. Let's pray now to close. Father, we give you thanks for these first few verses of chapter 4 in Ephesians. We see how Paul urged the Christians to be Christians. He urged them to live in light of the calling with which they had been called. Teach us to take seriously our responsibility in Christ. Teach us to walk as a manner of life, day after day, to strive to represent Christ well. Where we are failing, forgive us. Where we are failing, convict us. Where we are failing, sanctify us. So that we as a church would be those who are walking daily, in a manner that is worthy of the great lofty calling with which we have been called. Father, may we display those characteristics that ought to be true of every Christian, in one sense so daunting, to think that consistently we should be known for our humility and gentleness for our patience. We cannot effect these in our own strength. It only comes by your grace. I pray that we would be those that seize the divine life, pursuing communion with you, meditating frequently on who you are and who you are to us through Christ. May we meditate upon Christ's humility and his gentleness and your patience. And may that bring about in us those very same attributes. And Lord, as we look at the conduct that we are to have in the church, may we be faithful to bear with one another in love, carrying one another with a heart that overflows with affection for each other, striving eagerly to preserve the unity of the church. Give us a right perspective. As invariably we will disagree, as invariably there will be struggles, give us a right perspective to understand the relative importance of every disagreement in the life of the church according to the progress of the gospel. Father, give us wisdom and humility, especially to leave all of our preferences behind so as to maintain the unity of this church. And as we are obedient to this teaching, we understand there is a fruit that we will enjoy. Much joy to be here in sacrifice for one another, self-denial service. Where else would we choose to be? And at the same time, we become a compelling community. Those that don't know Christ know enough. They see enough to understand that we have something that they don't have. And by virtue of our behavior, they find it to be desirable. We are a compelling community. Would you draw them to us so as to hear the gospel and be saved? Father, we submit ourselves to you this evening as a church. We ask that you would have your way with us. And we pray as ever through the matchless name of Christ. Amen.